and the scales fell off of his eyes, his heart was made anew, and after that transformation, there was an entirely new Paul. Whether to eat or to drink, all to the glory of God, he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, new life. It's what salvation does. God gives to us a new birth. He, he gives to us a new heart. We are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And, and since becoming a Christian, not only had Paul changed, but how he was treated had changed as well. And Paul had suffered quite a bit. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us that he had been beaten countless times almost to the death. It's likely being beaten unconscious and then still being beaten while unconscious. Five times he received 40 lashes minus one. The minus one because traditionally 40 lashes should kill a man. Expose the back of your ribs and leave organs unprotected. And so the punishment was designed to bring a person one lash away from death. And that gruesome act was meant to deter future crime. Because no one wants to be that guy whose body is shredded to ribbons. It didn't work for Paul because that happened to him five times. Because he wouldn't shut his mouth up about Jesus Christ. Paul was constantly traveling, been shipwrecked and survived many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and in exposure. His own people put him in danger, that's the Jewish people, and the Gentile people put him in danger as well, that's everyone who is not a Jewish person. The very people whom he is trying to share the gospel with, the people whom he is trying to help, they are the ones who do him harm. And now Paul sits chained to a Roman soldier waiting to find out if he's going to face the death penalty or if he will get to live a little bit longer. Now, Paul's life alone should destroy any kind of health, wealth, prosperity theology we have, brothers and sisters. Even the subtle kind that we hold on to sometimes, that God's going to make these things work out for me if he loves me. We have a very faithful and godly man with horrible health and no wealth who no average person on the street would ever Call prosperous. We've got to remember that. When things seem like they're not going our way, we have to remember that in some of our most difficult days, those days are not a sign that God has abandoned us. No, he's right there with us. We can't forget that. And, and so Paul's not a young man at this point. He's a prisoner. Life has changed drastically for him since becoming a Christian. Can you imagine catching your own reflection and seeing your own mangled face and body, feeling the aches, running your fingers over your scars. You know, sometimes we get so used to hearing about how all these Christians suffered in the first century that it doesn't feel real to us anymore. Almost like a tall tale from a different kind of people, from a different kind of era. Brothers and sisters, this happened, and it's currently happening to many of our family are all over the world. Gruesome things because they openly love Jesus Christ. And here, chained to a guard, awaiting a verdict of life or death with all of that time to contemplate his own life, what do you think Paul's thoughts are? As he writes this letter to a local church in Philippi. Regret? If I could only turn back time, how I would change things and make different decisions to prevent all of these things from happening. is actually quite the opposite. In these four short chapters, 104 verses in all, which is about two and a half of these pages, 12-point font, Paul mentions joy at least 15 times. He mentions Jesus Christ about 50 times. They are, they're linked. This is the book right here where Paul famously writes, to live 
is Christ to die is gain. This is the letter where he says, for it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. This is a text where Paul says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. This is where he writes, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's where Paul pens the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is the book where Paul, chained to a guard, three different ones a day, eight hours each at a time, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's that's not about winning a basketball game. But everything is for Christ, is Christ, in Christ, knowing Christ. I'm leaving a ton out. But we have an elderly man in jail with a broken body talking about a steadfast joy. That sounds crazy. Sometimes we get so used to uh, this kind of language, join the Lord, where it no longer has any real effect upon us anymore. We don't actually seek joy in Christ or in any kind of relation to him, but we go searching for it in other things. This is a mangled prisoner talking about joy awaiting death row. This sounds crazy. Unless, unless, unless it's true. Is it true? You want that kind of joy? I want that. You know, some of us think that we can't have joy in the situations and in the circumstances that we find ourselves in today, that it's impossible to rejoice in what we are going through or after what we've been through. Look at Paul. Is Paul crazy? Or is it all true? In the hope of this study, I'm borrowing content from Ligon Duncan in this intro, the hope for the next few sermons over the next few days that we have together. We want to find the root of Christian joy from a man who understood what real joy really is in each and every circumstance. When I look at a Christian, a believer, a brother of ours on whom the world had lost its grip. The world had nothing to offer a man like Paul, nothing it could give to him because he already found something far better. Now, this doesn't happen passively in the Christian life. We have to fight for it. We have to fight for this kind of joy. Ligon Duncan, speaking of the Christian life, he says this, it's not the rejection of joy, It's the rejection of cheap joy. It's not the rejection of satisfaction. It's the rejection of superficial satisfaction. It's not the rejection of delight. It's the rejection of shallow delight, the pursuit of cheap delight. The apostle has tasted of the everlasting, bottomless foundation of delight in Jesus Christ, and the world is lost on him. There's a fight for this kind of joy. We have to reject and we must pursue. And that is the testimonies of Christians in the entire Bible. The world has been joyfully lost on them. And our hope is that this may be increasingly true in each of us. So why don't we pray together before we look at our text. Let's pray. Father, these bold hopes that we have in the study of your word over the next few days, that we might understand what Joy in your son really is. Deeper unity among these brothers and sisters as we press into Jesus Christ. It's, 
It's all impossible unless you grant it to us by your Spirit. And so we ask, please, God, in an act of your love, that you would sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. Would you have mercy and extend grace on a people who do not deserve mercy or your grace, but in your Son, may we be found in him to rejoice, the kind of joy that an illness cannot take away or a bank account statement or what people think of us or singleness or difficult relationships or barrenness, something that none of those things can take away. But would you continue to save us, God, and build your church. Be glorified, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Philippians, we read this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul begins this letter by calling himself and calling Timothy servants or bond slaves of Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, there's not many higher titles, not many greater honors than to be a slave of Christ Jesus. There's no higher dignity than to be called a Christian servant no matter what anyone else says. That's a big piece of our identity. And so Paul can be chained like a criminal, imprisoned by Caesar, at their mercy in one sense, and yet this is exactly where his Lord Jesus wants him to be. He isn't at their mercy. He isn't even imprisoned in that sense. And he's not a helpless victim of the system. He's freely serving his master who holds all authority in heaven and on earth. You know, Paul frequently introduces himself as a bond slave of Jesus Christ. This is someone who freely denies their own rights and bonds themselves to their master. That's not by accident. That's not unrelated to joy. Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. That's a promise. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You want real life, then you have to lose your life. The most joyful Christians in the world do not exist or live their lives to serve themselves. No, they live for something and for someone much greater than themselves, and they are completely at the disposal of their master and are his joyful and willing servants. We have to let that sink in, brothers and sisters. D.A. Carson, in his excellent exposition on the book of Philippians, he writes this in contrast to a biblical mentality. He says this, I would like to buy about $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much. Just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies cherish self-denial, and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I myself don't want to love those from different races, especially if they smell. 
I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of gospel, please. He continues, secularization does not refer to some social impetus driving us toward the abolition of religion. Secularization is not the destruction of religion. Rather, secularization refers to the processes that squeeze religion to the periphery of life. It's no longer the main thing. No longer at the center. The result is not that we abandon religion or banish the gospel. Rather, religion is marginalized and privatized and the gospel is rendered unimportant. He continues, we ourselves are heavily influenced by the culture in which we live and move and have our being. We unwittingly find ourselves formerly espousing the gospel and formally confessing that biblical religion is of infinite worth. We say it's of infinite worth. We sing it. We confess it. We know it logically up here. While in reality, we are no longer possessed by it. We buy our $3 worth of gospel, but it challenges us very little. The sapping influence of self-indulgence throughout the Western world wields its power in the church. For many confessing Christians, it has become more important to be comfortable and secure than to be self-sacrificing and giving $3 worth of gospel, please, but no more. You know, perhaps for many of us, I'm preaching this to myself, the reason for our lack of joy in the Lord is because we have squeezed him out into the periphery so much that we don't even look like bond slaves. And we confess biblical religion, but we're not being possessed by it. We want to save our lives, not lose our lives, and therefore we never truly find the gain and truly find that real life. And in trying to find joy in anything but the Lord, we never find the unbreakable joy in the Lord. This is a lesson that was never lost on Paul. He begins so many letters with this identification as a bond slave, a willing servant, lose all my rights for the sake of Jesus Christ. Romans 1.1, Galatians 1.10, Titus 1.1, other New Testament authors as well, James 1.1, 2 Peter 1.1, Jude 1.1, Revelation 1.1. They all make the identification of being a slave, living for someone much greater and more satisfying than himself and that kind of life. The call to that relationship with the Lord is for all believers, not just superstar Christians. It's for every single Christian, even the way Paul addresses the church here. You are the saints in Philippi. That's the whole church. Paul is not writing just to the Christian heroes. He is not writing only to those people who have biographies written about them as if some are really living for Jesus and they're the saints, and then there's a B team, and then even the C team. No, there's no distinction. There's no B team. There is no C team. Every Christian is a saint in Christ Jesus. Every believer has been positionally made righteous in him, and every Christian has practically had their old life cut off. That's, that's what the, word whole, the root word of the word holy means. Saint means cut. This is the entire congregation, brothers and sisters. This kind of joyful living with Christ at the very center is for all of us. 
We aren't meant to build our own little kingdoms of self. Verse 3, we continue. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. There's a great joy in partnership within the gospel. Close friends that, like Pastor Eric read, is not related to personality or socioeconomic status. You know, there's a sweetness in this letter that can be very unlike other letters Paul writes, where he has to do some harsh correction. And while Paul loved and ministered all the churches, the church in Philippi was very near and very dear to his heart. In all my remembrance of you, Paul writes, as he thinks about this congregation, he's filled with his joy. In the book of Acts, chapter 16, it chronicles how this church in Philippi came to be. Paul wasn't even supposed to go to Philippi. He didn't have a special heart. He didn't have a special conviction to go there. His team wanted to go to Asia. The Holy Spirit stopped them from going to Asia. Then they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go into Bithynia. Then they go down to Troas, which is the last bit of land before the sea, and there on the edge of that land, Paul has a vision of a man on the other side of it saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so the team discusses it together. They agree to go to Philippi, which is Macedonia's leading city. This is the very first time the gospel goes to European soil. And usually Paul's method would be go to a synagogue and preach the gospel there. Find some common ground with people using the Old Testament scriptures. But as large of a city as Philippi was, there were not even 10 Jewish men there, not even 10 Bible-believing people. And so there's no synagogue, there's no pulpit, there's no nothing. And so they go to a river where sometimes people would pray, and there they find a businesswoman named Lydia. And the Lord opens her heart to pay attention to the gospel. It's grace. She hears it, she believes it, and then she's baptized. Her whole household hears it, believes it, and is baptized as well. She takes them in. Her house will eventually house the church in Philippi. The very first convert is a Gentile businesswoman. As they continued to do ministry in Philippi, they were badgered by a demon-possessed fortune teller who made her owners a lot of money. Paul casts out the demon in the name of Jesus Christ. The slave girl is free from her oppression. Her owners are furious because their business is now ruined and they start a riot, an anti-Semitic riot. These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. So the crowds start pummeling them down. The officials intervene. They strip them and give official orders, not a mob jumping this time, but let's beat them with rods officially. And then they get thrown into a prison, the inner prison, the worst kind of prison. Paul and Silas are in the stocks, which would stretch the body into painful positions. And at midnight, they start praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Outside of their own salvation, I think, the greatest joy is seeing the salvation of another, even at cost to themselves. Do you believe that? That that's true of believers? Outside of our own salvation, is the joy of seeing other people saved. 
God sends an earthquake, the doors open, the chains are broken, the stocks split. The jailer there, knowing that his life is bound up in his ability to do his job, he tries to take his own life because all the prisoners are being set free by the supernatural earthquake. Paul cries out, don't harm yourself. We're all here. He doesn't try and escape. He doesn't take that opportunity because he sees a different kind of opportunity. The jailer, his response serves, what must I do to be saved? He knew that they would know the answer to that question. And they said to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your whole household. And that very night, the gospel comes to his household. They hear it. They believe it. They're baptized. That prison guard, now instead of inflicting harm on Paul and Silas, he washes them and tends to their wounds. And so we have a Gentile businesswoman and her household, a formerly demon-possessed slave girl, and a suicidal jailer in his household among the very first converts in Europe. This is a very diverse church in Philippi where Paul initially had no desire to go, and 10 years have passed since then. And this church has been instrumental in helping other churches. I know your guys' church has been around for about that. You guys are instrumental in that as well. This church has been ministering to Paul in prison, financially giving to other believers in need. None of this, none of this was in Paul's original plans. God stops Paul's plans and redirects him to a place where he had no intention of going, Philippi. It wasn't through Paul's ordinary method of synagogue preaching, but the river was his pulpit, the jail was his stage, a demon-possessed slave girl, his audience, and Paul writes here, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you because it was all Paul's God. From the first day until now, not Paul's preaching, not his bravery, not his own wisdom or his church strategy, my God, my God, my God, he saves, even in a city where there are not 10 Bible-believing religious folks to make a synagogue. My God, that's what he does. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And Paul had seen for over a decade God's saving grace that produced a gospel partnership. And that's what Paul gave Paul great joy. In all of his prayers, in all of his memories, of how God brought all of this to be and in all of their ongoing relationships centered upon the gospel and in Jesus Christ who would save them all. It's this congregation, this little church family, they've heard that Paul might now face execution. This is their church planner. This is their spiritual parent. Paul continues in verse 6 and 7. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is a text where Paul gives this little church assurance because that's what this little church needs. They need to be reassured. They're thinking Paul might die. Paul's not worried about them. The good work here is a work of salvation. And from its beginning to its end, it's a work of God. Salvation is all of God. Paul's rejoicing that it's true of these Christians in Philippi. Paul writes here, he who began a good work in you. 
God begins the work of salvation, not us. We do not initiate it. He initiates it. We do not pursue the Lord. He pursues us. It's not that I loved him first, then he responds with loving me back. No, John writes, 1 John 1, 19, we love because he first loved us. He initiates, he pursues, he loves, he begins. He is the true seeker. Salvation is all of God's work, especially at its beginning. Let me read to you Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Dead. I remember my, my grandfather, when he passed away, he raised me. He was, he was like my father. I saw his body in the hospital bed, and I was trying to wake up his dead body. Wake up. Wake up. I tried with all my might to wake him up. He didn't wake up. He was dead. Completely unresponsive to my pleas. That's how we each once were to the Lord, brothers and sisters. Dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived. Not only, it's not that only some of us were that bad or that dead, all of us among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's our condition, dead in sin, following the course of this world, chasing after the devil. Slaves to our passions, by nature, children of wrath. Can that person, being described, begin anything with God? Absolutely not. The text continues, but God. Beautiful words. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Who made us alive? God did. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's passive. We have been saved by another. And raised us up with them. Who raised us up with Christ? God did. And seated us with them in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Who did that? God did. So that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Word of God is very clear. Salvation from its beginning and thus to its end is a work of God. We don't initiate it. We don't pursue Him first, so then He pursues us back. We do not believe first, and then He loves us back. We are spiritual corpses until God, being rich in mercy, begins to work in us. Even the first convert, Lydia, Acts chapter 16, 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Who's working? God's working. It's never in the preacher's power to convert a soul or begin the work of salvation. When anyone preaches to unbelievers or shares the gospel, it's as effective as preaching in the morgue. 
unless God opens the sinner's heart. How's that for philosophy ministry? We preach, teach, evangelize the Word of God as best as we can, and we pray that God would open hearts, knowing that even our prayers for open hearts find their origin in Him. After that initial uh, conversions in Philippi, they all testified to this. A vision of a man from Macedonia, come help us. Businesswoman by the river, fortune-telling slave girl, suicidal prison guard, miraculous earthquake. They, They all believe. It's all God. All of it. So there's no foreknowledge as defined by God foreknowing intellectually what decision we will make about him in the future so that he could respond to our initiative as if we logically begin this good work. No way. Salvation's all of God from its beginning to its end. And here it is called a good work. He works. Charles Spurgeon, the work of grace has its root in the divine goodness of the Father. It's planted by the self-denying goodness of the Son. And it's daily watered by the goodness of the Holy Spirit. It springs from good and leads to good and is so altogether good. The Apostle calls it a work. And in the deepest sense, it is indeed a work to convert a soul. Brothers and sisters, It takes nothing less than the work of the entire Trinity to save a single soul. The Father decrees and sends His Son. The Son willingly gives His life upon the cross and rises from the grave. And the Holy Spirit convicts the heart and regenerates. It takes the work of the entire Trinity to save a soul. How dare we ever think that we could ever initiate something like this. That we could begin something like this as if we somehow had a part in closing this infinite gap of separation between us and a holy perfect righteous God as if they were some kind of synergistic effort you do your part God because I got my part covered or or I give you permission to work in my life no he's the one who takes the first step towards us and in fact he's the one who takes every single other step towards us Martin Lloyd-Jones, religion is man searching for God. Christianity is God seeking man. And how dare we ever think that we could somehow stop his work of salvation as if we had that kind of power in our own lives and within the church. This is where Paul's confidence ultimately lies. In God, not in man. It's not in how amazing these Philippians are, their partnership with him in the gospel. For 10 years now, the church is so reliable. They always come through. We can always count on them. No. Even while Paul thinks about all of their faithfulness and their good works and their genuine love for Jesus Christ, Paul's confidence lies in the one who began this work in him, in them, and will continue to work in them, and will bring these Christians complete in all that God has for us in salvation in Jesus Christ. When he sees their fruit, his confidence lies in the greater root of it all. He knows their salvation will continue to perfection. Now, that doesn't always feel like that's the case. We fight sin. Sometimes we lose. Sometimes we lose really badly. 
We love the Lord. Sometimes we feel jaded about everything. I'm preaching about joy this retreat. Be angry, bitter guy at home, short tempered. We believe in heaven and in hell, the gravity of it all. And we can look at people we love in the face who do not know him, not say a word about the gospel of grace, get tired of praying for people even and be fine with it. Act like nothing is seriously wrong. It doesn't always feel like this great work of salvation is being accomplished in us at all times. Don't you hate that? But what we have to understand, brothers and sisters, is that the work of grace that has been begun by the Lord within each of us is not even close to being finished in any single one of us. While we have breath in this life, there's always something more that our Father is accomplishing right here to make us more like Jesus Christ and to bring us into a greater understanding of who He is and the nature of the salvation that we possess. God doesn't begin a work only to hand it off and say, the rest is up to you, good luck. I hope to see you on the other side. If we could lose our salvation, we would have lost it day one. We would have dropped the baton at the handoff even. If God doesn't continue his work, it would lie forever unfinished. But God does finish his work. He's not like us. We begin projects and then lose interest. We enter into relationships, try it out, date someone else. If we find something we don't like, marry someone else. We don't like our marriage sometimes. Try this career, then quit. Start this book, but never finish it. There are unfinished paintings, uncompleted degrees. I got one of those. Plans hanging in the balance. God is not like us. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. John 1, 27, Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. John 6, 39, this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Romans 8, 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The psalmist knew about this. Psalm 37, 23. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong for the Lord upholds his hand. You guys see my boys. The youngest one, his name's Trent. He falls down a lot. He thinks he can do more than he can do. Chases after his brothers. He doesn't know how young he is. And when I look at him, I know that he is not now what he will always be. And he can get frustrated because he wants to be more than he is right now. He wants to be like Braden and Dane. He doesn't understand all the time this, this process of growth. Brothers and sisters, we're not now what we will always be. 
And for the Christian, there is this confidence that though we fight sin tooth and nail, sometimes lose, sometimes we lose very badly. Though we don't always feel like we're Christians even sometimes, our confidence in this work of salvation never rests in our own performance, but it rests upon the God who always finishes what He starts, always completes what He begins. And even in our daily walk with Him holding our little hands, we know that who we are today is not who we will always be, brothers and sisters, if we be found in Christ. Let this be a comfort to you, a source of joy in all your peaks, in all of your deepest valleys, our faults, the battle within us, our sin, our mistakes, our treacherous hearts. Look to Him. Our professors used to always say, on our worst days as a Christian, we are seated in the heavenlies. And on our best days as believers, we still don't deserve any of it. Brothers and sisters, salvation does not rest in our ability to stay saved. It rests upon the God who will finish what he has started. And in the day of Christ Jesus, when he returns, and when we behold him for all that he is, we will be like him in all that he is. For we are found in him. As his church, his bride, the two will become one flesh. And what he has secured at the cross when he cried out, it is finished, will be actualized in us when we behold him face to face. That's Paul's confidence in his own life. That's his joyous confidence for the Christians in Philippi. That's our confidence as well. And we can rest in him and not in our own performance. We can trust in him. And I know even when I say that, when you hear beautiful assurance for the Christian, I know that even when we hear that, something beautiful like that can still be abused by the unregenerate church attender. This wonderful truth of God's perfect work and salvation can be used as a license for sin by those who don't really know him. Oh, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't rest upon my performance. Phew. I'll go enjoy my sin in peace without any fear of judgment. Thank you, God, for that. Thank you for being so useful for me that I can live however I want and not fear condemnation. John Stark says this, a nominal Christian, a Christian in name only, not a real one, a nominal Christian finds Christ useful A true Christian finds Christ beautiful. R.C. Sproul, he says, natural man's sin is precisely this. He wants the benefits of God without God himself. Do you find Jesus Christ beautiful? Do you find God beautiful? That determines everything. It determines everything. Don't you want to bind yourself to this God? To lose yourself to this God and serve Him 
Or do you want $3 worth of gospel, please, and no more? We want to shrink our entire existence and our world into the claustrophobic confines of what I need and what I feel. Or we're giving ourselves to something much bigger to be part of what God's doing upon this earth. Where is it, brothers and sisters, that we need to lose our lives for Christ's sake and the gospel to find true life? Where is it that we need to trust him more? What's preventing you from knowing him more? I bet you already know the answer. What pursuit in your life is preventing you from pursuing this God? What rights are you trying to hold on to so you can't bond yourself to him? You you think Paul's panicking in his chains right here? The church's well-being doesn't rest on his shoulders. There's a surer foundation for the church than Paul. And that's why he can write such a letter like this. Paul's confidence in God is his comfort and his rest in God. And as he thinks about the future prospect of all that God is doing, it's the same for us right now. Don't get caught up in the here and now in this little life of mine. Give yourself to the Lord wholeheartedly. The main idea in this verse is not only the sovereign initiative of God in salvation, but also his sovereign faithfulness to con- continue it in Christ Jesus for all who do believe. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. And we ask, God, that you would show us what it means to lose ourselves, to lose our lives, to find life. Would you let us peer into the gospel and see what gives Paul such steadfast joy that it might be true of us as well. Lord, we long to see you, this church, these brothers and sisters before me. We, we long that they would be one even as you, you are one with your son. We long that they would be Christ-like and that this little life would be used for all of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.